Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And good evening. I am back after my hiatus. It is a different perspective, and I truly am Kevin Randall. I thought you'd all want to know that before we got started. The other thing you should know is, according to my precise calculations, I've been doing this for a year. The first show was uh, recorded back on August uh, 17th to be aired on August 20th. So this has been a long run for me, I guess. I don't know. I am joined by Don Schmidt, whom I've known for eons. And uh, but speaking of that, I probably ought to have that introduction change. It says I've been investigating UFOs for 50 years. Maybe we ought to change it to like 50 minutes or something. So it doesn't sound like I'm old and decrepit here. Anyway, I'm here with Don Schmidt. Uh, and as I said, I've known him for quite a long time. He still resides in his native Wisconsin on a 48-acre ranch located just outside Milwaukee in Hubertus. He has a bachelor's degree from Concordia University and has taken graduate courses in criminal, criminal justice at St. John's University. He has worked for the U.S. Postal Service for 23 years. He has also worked as a freelance medical and commercial illustrator. He is the former director of special investigations and a co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies. As I say, he teamed with me in 1988. It was his idea, not mine, to investigate the Roswell UFO crash. And he, I think the, the thinking was that with a military background, I would be able to relate to some of the military people a little bit better than 
people who had not served in the military. Uh, anyhow, we we uh, got together to re to uh, research the Roswell UFO crash, and that resulted in two books, which were used uh, by Showtime as the for the original movie Roswell. He later teamed with Tom Carey, and the two of them have collaborated on a number of UFO books. I'm going to ask him about one specifically here when we get going. Uh, that have a and most of them have Roswell as a main theme. He had appeared on dozens of television shows and radio programs and documentaries. He and his wife, Marie, have been married for six years now, I think. Um, no, it's about 12, 12, 12. It's what? It's been 12 years. Oh, 12 years. My God, I'm not even close. Okay, was, 12 years. And I can say, though, what it seems like six. So, <laughs> and that's Well, that's good. That's good. Yes, that's good. Well, welcome to A Different Perspective. Well, thank you for having me back, and uh, congratulations on your one-year uh, stint on this particular show, this particular program, and I wish you many more. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a curse or uh, uh, an obligation there. I don't know. Um, I think what we're going to talk about, I think we'll start off, and, and we're, of course, in the uh, short segment here, but you, of course, were at the Roswell Festival here on July beginning of July. Anything interesting going on down there uh, this time around? It was the 70th anniversary of the Roswell crash. Well, one of my disappointments was that um, I would, I had hoped there would be a greater focus on Roswell, on it being just, as you say, the 70th anniversary. And uh, yet it was still the, the standard fare of uh, abductees and crop circles and um, other such, um, you know, ancillary aspects of the UFO phenomenon. Does that, does that detract from the Roswell case at all? Well, it, 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 it detracts in the sense that I'd like to believe that as it is sponsored specifically by the International UFO Museum and Research Center, that they tried to be all-encompassing. They tried to present all those varying degrees of, uh, of interest. And they, as a result, they do attract people that in many, for many reasons, have no interest in the Roswell case at all. They may be there strictly because they are into abduction, missing time cases, or uh, crop circles, that type of thing. Um, but as Bud Hopkins used to remind me, and, and I've repeated the, the quote myself, uh, one mystery at a time. And uh, and I think it just tends to muddy the waters more than anything else. Well, that was kind of what I was thinking, too. You get off into all these ancillary topics and you, ancient astronauts would be another subtopic and cattle mutilations would be another subtopic. Um, it does certainly muddy the waters. Well, we're going to we're coming up on our first break here. So we're going to take a short break. Um, I'm with Don Schmidt here. We're talking about the Roswell Festival. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about MUFON. I'll ask him if he's uh, seen my post on General Exxon and some of the things I've learned in the last few weeks about that that relates directly to Roswell. Uh, you can look for that posting at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and take a look at the other fine programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, xzbn.net. Uh, we will be back right after this.
This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. And we have returned. I'm joined here high atop the beautiful Chrysler building in downtown Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I don't know why I'm saying that. That's not true. Uh, I'm joined with Don Schmidt. We were talking about the Roswell Festival and some of the ancillary things going on. Is When you get to the festival, is um, Roswell a main theme or is that kind of taken a backseat to some of these other things in today's world? Oh, I still... I, I observe that it's still a main theme, whether it's also by some of the other sponsored uh, events, such as the, the city has uh, their own speakers come in and uh, maybe another group or two. And they'll even bring skeptics in and um, try to present the opposing viewpoint. But um, the one thing I always remind all those participating at the museum is that, well, we still have the museum that uh, no matter what it takes to attract people to come into Roswell, then they at least uh, make every effort to still go through the museum. I, I always encourage them to check out the library, which is the largest UFO book collection in the world, and then the research uh, area as far as all of the uh, files that are, are accessible. That's the wonderful thing about the museum in Roswell, that it's accessible, that you can come and spend hours, spend days if you would like, and um, have total would, access to the material. I would, I would argue that it's not accessible because it's in Roswell, New Mexico. Oh yes, well, it is <laughs> a know, destination city. Yes, yes. You know, it's it's really not. Yeah, it's like three hours from El Paso and three hours from Lubbock and what three hours from Albuquerque. Um, <laughs> well, you used to you drove fast enough. We made uh, Roswell. In maybe two and a half hours, right? Yeah, I was following you. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's why I got the speeding ticket. Yeah, but that's because you were ahead of me that time. And I pulled over as well. And he waved me past. You know, I'm not after you. <laughs> oh. And I was driving a red Camaro, which didn't help. That was a red. Uh, red is always uh, the most attractive as far as. Uh... 
Well, now we've gotten off the beaten track, so to speak, uh, which would be Roswell, I suppose. Um, we talked a little bit about the festival. Did you have a chance to take a look at the article I just posted on uh, General Exxon? Yes, I did. And Because um... we both interviewed him, and he talked about these teams coming in. I should set this up, I suppose. These teams coming in from Washington, D.C., apparently, to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And he, as the base commander, and I always point out, that's kind of like the mayor of a city. He's got all these parts that he's responsible for. He was tasked with sending, uh, getting an airplane, airplanes ready and that sort of thing, and the teams would come in, they'd get on the airplane and go out and investigate UFOs. Uh, in the last week, actually, I was looking for something else in the Project Blue Book files and blundered onto this um, documents that talked about them creating two-man teams. Uh, sorry, ladies, in that time frame, it was two-man teams who would be trained a little bit in, in investigating UFOs, and then they would be dispatched to the scene of a UFO um, activity. I think that's what Exxon was talking about, so it wasn't quite as grandiose as, as he was suggesting. What, what, what was your reaction to that? Well, one suggestion, and if you recall, Exxon talked about how they arrived in civvies, and then they would change into their uniforms. Um, he was of the impression they were all officers, I think, obviously, by their, their, their very uniform. But I guess what I would look into, Kevin, is remember the 3602nd Air Intelligence Squadron. And uh, back in 1952, when they were essentially assigned to investigate the more serious UFO cases. And Heineck would even complain uh, years later to us even that uh, the hardcore cases were all going upstairs. Well, I would say about the 4602nd Air Intelligence Service Squadron, um, their mission was to, uh, looking at it from a Cold War point of view, was, was to interrogate downed Soviet airmen who had been right, shot down right. in bombing missions over the United States and be captured. And their mission was to go out and gather them up and, and interrogate them. And the reason they were plugged into the uh, UFO investigations was here is a way they could um, practice their interrogation skills with civilians and that sort of thing to get information about where something might have happened or what direction it was going. So it was kind of a double-edged sword there. And I always got the impression they didn't do a whole lot. But that, we know of, that, that we know of. That we know of. Um, I, I, I hearken back to when they came. There was a uh, a number of officers, Heineck had threatened to resign from Blue Book on a number of occasions. He was becoming frustrated. You will recall, as I had mentioned, the hardcore cases, you know, not being brought to his attention. He would, people think that Heineck was spending all of his free time down in Dayton, Ohio, during his Blue Book tenure, and which was not the case at all. He'd go down once a month and peruse through, you know, case reports. But one thing that always struck him uh, as unusual was the fact that he would, through the course of uh, his travels, he would talk to both military and civilian pilots who would often confide to him about, you know, scrambles. And he would talk to SAC officers who would talk about infiltrations and things. And so he was, he was hearing, you know, as far as sighting reports from, you know, serious, highly trained military types, fully expecting that he would, you know, go down to Blue Book 
and he'd find these case reports. And they were never to be found. So it always puzzled him as to you know, what was going on. Where were they going? Um, and so for his constant, you know, threats to walk or you can fire me, this type of thing. It was a representative from the 4602nd who actually came and talked Heineck into staying on. And I remember him talking about that on one occasion. So to whose benefit did it serve keeping Heineck on as a consultant to Blue Book, essentially running interference, their scientific consultant, always being the first to the microphone to explain away every and any case that they could. And yet, I think Exxon clearly was describing another team. And as you yourself mentioned in your blog, that when it came to their final reports, when they returned back to Wright Pat, he never saw their reports. It was his impression they went back to Washington with whoever these people were. I don't think they went to Washington, though. I think that uh, the reports remained in Dayton at the ATEC, which evolved into the Foreign Technology Division, for those of you keeping score at home. And, and the thing is, there is something that I, in, in these reports that I was looking at uh, just this week, there was something called the Aerial Phenomenon Group. Yes, yes. Which which had to do with UFO investigations, and they were sort of the organization uh, railroading, railroading, uh, uh, conducting this uh, new activity. And then there's a there was another hierarchy above that, and I, the name of it escapes me at the moment. That suggested they were kind of pulling all these strings. So what concerns me uh, about this is uh, there seem to be levels of um, command structure above Blue Book, where precisely, things, precisely things were going, and yes. we've got some of the names. And I, I found some documents from the mm -hmm. Aerial Re Phenomena Research Group that talks about some of the sightings. I was going to ch cross-check those with the Blue Book files, and I haven't had a chance to do that yet to see if the sightings talked about in these documents, which I believe were actually classified at the time. I think most of them were confidential as opposed to secret or something higher, but they were classified at the time, and I was going to cross-check those with the Project Blue Book files and see if they showed up in there. Which now, would be something that we could I could do easily. Absolutely, and I know you have copies. You have a copy of the Blue Book file, and I would be very surprised should you come across any case reports, case investigations from FTD. And uh, that would be an aside. And as the press and as well, even Heineck were of the impression that Blue Book was the sole priority priority investigation of UFOs at that time. Well, the thing we ought to look at, first of all, is what we've learned here in just a few minutes on the program is that um, there was something called Project Blue Book, which investigated UFOs, but there was another organization run by the Aerial Phenomenon Group, which had two-man teams that were going to go out and investigate UFOs, uh, mostly in the western part of the United States, I think. Um, there was the 4602nd, which was tasked at one point with investigating UFOs. Yes, and in fact, uh, not to interrupt you, Kevin, uh, I, I just came across, I just paged through this, and uh, they even had a specific uh, report dated January 3rd, 1953, Air Force Regulation 24-4, which stated specifically, in the case of any physical UFO evidence, you are to safeguard it and notify us 
We will tell you what to do with it, end quote. And that's from the 4602nd. And that, so, and, and, and then we learn, we learn about Project Moondust, right. which, bega- which began in, uh, I think, October of 1957, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which, was, which, which was also tasked with um, retrieving space uh, debris, space junk. Or um, uh, debris from a foreign manufacturer or unknown origin. Well, unknown right. origin clearly moves us into the UFO field. But here's here's what strikes me about this, and it and it's simply this: if the Air Force didn't care about UFOs, as Project Blue Book suggests, after Ruppelt left, uh, given the um, people who were picked to uh, uh, run the project. If they didn't care about it, why do we have all these other organizations who are also tasked with UFO investigations that really aren't talked about by the people at Project Blue Book and that sort of thing? We seem to have levels of bureaucracy, I guess, stacked above Blue Book that's gathering information. Why do we have all of that? And you have a mid-level captain who is running a show at Blue Book who certainly does not have access to anything classified top secret unless it's provided him. And to place oneself in Heineck's shoes, when you yourself are able to determine that there are other projects or there is another project that supersedes your own involvement, one can understand his frustration. He would say that he stayed on because he wanted to retain access to the data. Well, but again, it was still filtered data. He was still getting the mundane. He was still getting generally the cases that could be easily explained away. The hardcore cases, again, were going. And I think you're certainly on the right trail. And I've quoted you um, in uh, the book on right pets specifically because you're the first one that I ever heard actually question that people always assume that Blue Book was the end all as far as UFO investigations. Where are the Army reports? Where are the Navy reports? Is it safe to assume that they indeed would have had their own projects, their own investigations at that time? And one would, I think it's often been suggested that the Navy, who would have much greater surveillance on a global basis than the Air Force, that they would have much greater access to the phenomena on a global level. Well, let me break in here because, A, we've gotten kind of off track where, we, where I was going with this conversation, and, B, we're getting close to our, our break here. <laughs> I'm uh, joined with Don, joined with Joan by Don Schmidt, as I said, high atop the beautiful Schuyler Building in downtown Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Now I just made that up again. Um, Don Schmidt's website is roswellinvestigators.com. Um, You can take a look at information at my blog, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. We will be back right after this, so stick around. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. 
For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. I have returned for another segment of A Different Perspective. I'm joined by Don Schmidt. We were talking about some of the secret projects that sort of were run by the Air Force in the 50s and 60s, and we know of others that went into the 70s and 80s and, and beyond that. I think we may have exhausted that from what we can do here without being overly boring. And I, no, I, I, I think you clearly have demonstrated, and as others have, that uh, there are still other channels. There are still foreign technology, for example. Um, not that it would fall under uh, the National Security Agency or anything. So one would like to believe that a steady stream of FOIA, Freedom of Information Act requests, the foreign technology might break something free. And, but uh, you, you have to ask the right question. Precise. That's always a problem. You have to ask the right question because if you phrase your question wrong or you ask the wrong question, they'll deny any knowledge of it and you were done. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I sent a FOIA request to the White Sands Missile Range. I gave them the date of the document I wanted. I gave them the title of the document I wanted. I gave them the author of the document of the, I wanted. And they said, we've never heard of it. I Can know. you be more specific? Well, no, I can't. But <laughs> No, really, I can't. I, I've I given you everything. So We can't. Uh, Wait, I, the only thing I didn't tell you is what file cabinet it's in. I know. <laughs> or who filed it, right. Yeah, what's yeah, there you go. filed it, right. <laughs> but, well, so there, there are avenues to be pursued in this. In this and and what, what gets to me at this point, and I, I really didn't want to get off onto this tangent, but what gets me at this point is what we're finding is levels of bureaucracy above Blue Book that had some sort of responsibility for UFO investigation, which really hasn't been talked about in all the UFO books that have been right, written right. and things like that. I, I mean, I don't remember reading about the Aerial Phenomenon Group in any, any of these books or anything, but clearly there, it's in the Project Blue Book files, and I probably shouldn't tell people where it is because then they'll go out and look at them themselves, but it's in, you know, in the administrative files, and I found all this information there, and one of the questions that came back to me was, do we have the names of these people? And I actually found a roster. So yeah, I got the names of the people who were involved in some of this stuff, so we can, we can run, run with it. Uh, by the way, Colonel Friend, or well, eventually Colonel Friend, who was one of the chiefs of Project Blue Book, is involved with the Aerial Phenomenon Group. Yes, so yes. So it's it's kind of a, a two-edged sword there. And uh, uh, last yes, I had, I even had dinner with Colonel Friend out in Los Angeles, and I peppered him with questions as far as uh, not only Roswell but his tenure as far as as uh, project director at Blue Book. He was the second last one, as you know, before uh, Quintanella. And uh, all at once, he he volunteers. You know, I was at Wright Field. When that wreckage came in, and, you know, after I kind of crawled back onto my chair, I went, you're kidding. You, you never mentioned this before, and I've never seen this in print anywhere. He says, yes, but uh, I'm convinced it was a broken arrow, that type of thing. And broken arrow, we should define for people, is a, a type of nuclear accident. An errant, yeah, atomic it's, bomb it, or a nuclear, not nuclear device, right. 
but it was a it's a code name that the Air Force used for um, an emergency operation they had to do. It was a broken arrow, and it gave it gives people an idea of what it was, or the people who were responding, what it was, and what was going on there. So, but at the very least, what he was demonstrating is that uh, well, he he in no way accepted that it was Project Mogul or a- anything of that of that sort. That he still felt that it rose to that level, and for his admission that he was actually there at the time. It suggested that uh, well beyond, you know, General Roger Ramey even canceling the resumption of that flight out of Fort Worth to Wright Field with uh, the wreckage brought in by Marcel, Major Marcel from Roswell, that uh, here was uh, just as Exxon, that uh, Friend was aware of uh, the arrival of uh, the so-called Roswell debris at that time. You know, if you'd given me a chance to break in there, I could have made a joke about you saying rise to the occasion or rising to the event because, of course, a balloon would rise. But yes. <laughs> I, won't, I won't do that because we have to be serious here, and I don't know why. Um, I sometimes wonder if we're much too serious. Well, you and I laughed a lot together. I mean, we, we often looked on the light side of, of things, and it's uh, <laughs> the, the world is too serious. Yeah, yeah, and it's getting more hate-filled too, which is oh, way too bad. But that's 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 for a different program, not not this one here. I wanted to talk to you briefly. Well, a nice segue into what I wanted to get into, and and that was uh, things going on in MUFON, which for me, I guess, began with a very racist rant posted to Facebook. So speaking of hateful, yeah, yeah, um, and and that was the segue right there. Um, and I know that there's been quite a bit of fallout from that. Uh, well, you and I were both with uh, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. APRO. And, APRO. And we both had loyalty to both Coral and Jim Lorenzen. And you, we both remember how portrayed specifically Coral felt when Walt Andrus back at that time essentially took APRO's membership list and created his own group, created his own organization. Well, what what Coral had told me was that um, Andrus had suggested that they, that what he wanted to do was organize the Midwest, the Midwest uh, field, right. field field investigators. And the original organization was the Midwest uh, UFO uh, network. Whereas and, Lorenzen's at that time were down in Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, so he was going to organize it, and so there wouldn't be a duplication of effort and that sort of thing. And then he spun it off into his own his own organization, which is one of the reasons I never joined it. I could, as you say, a, a certain amount of uh, loyalty to the Lorenzans, who were always very good to me on, on that sort Same of thing. Same here, absolutely. Um, but. but but I think we need to move into the 21st century. Well, yes, but and, so and, I'd like to just briefly quick, I mean, just touch on. Never, never contradict the host. Okay, I'm not contradicting. No, you were going to say, I'm sorry, you were going to say. But where we would be able to present the United Front on the fact that, as you recall, you and I couldn't do anything right by MUFON regarding Roswell. We couldn't yes. write anything. We couldn't. I mean, our books were summarily attacked for no other reason than it was competition. And I, I'll never forget how I just confronted Walt Anders at one point, And I finally asked him, I said, what's the problem? To which he responded, well, if you guys keep this up, you're going to put us out of business. Oh, I wish we'd and worked that, harder then. And that said everything. Well, words, uh, Walt you know, Andrus 
Walt Andrus came up to me at one of the symposiums I was invited to speak at, and he he, he was just livid. Where are you guys getting your money? It was yes, as if we yes. were taking money out of his pocket, mm -hmm. out of his organization, his to run our investigation. And I said, I said we're financing it ourselves. Uh, I never got a dime of anything other than uh, uh, in advance for the books and some royalties for the books, which basically paid the expenses that we'd run up in our investigation. But it I mean, cost a lot God, of money. Our, our phone expenses alone back at that time were phenomenal. Well, that's and that and that's dating us as well, because in today's environment, you can call all over the world practically for nothing. Exactly. But, yeah, the phone expenses were huge. There was uh, hotel bills. There were meals. There was travel expenses. I mean, we made it a point to meet with the witnesses. We wanted to sit down and speak with them face to face. So we were traveling all over the country. And, and, and one of the important points is there, and, and we'll get back to MUFON in a minute, but one of the important points in that kind of investigation is being able to sit in the room with a person and watch their body language, watch how they react to things. And, I, and one of the best examples of that was when we were talking to Sheridan Cabot, who was the counterintelligence agent that went out with Marcel. And we're at their apartment in Sierra Vista, mm -hmm. uh, Arizona. Arizona. Mm -hmm. Arizona, not far from the church's fried chicken. Always got to get a plug for them in there. <laughs> but um, I was talking to Cavett, and I said something about the bodies. And he got very nervous. He leaned yes. forward. He picked up a magazine. He sat back. He threw the magazine down and said, Bill mm -hmm. Rickett tell you that? Yes. And there I made the mistake of saying, no, we got it from Edwin Easley. And he relaxed visibly. And I realized that I'd blown the question there. I should have said, but I didn't want to get Bill Rickett into trouble. No, and as we because recall, he was an important witness as well. And as we recall, Cavett would eventually call up Rickett, wanting yes. to know who he was talking to about this. Uh, you recall that Cavett was sitting on the sofa between yes. us. Yes. And at one point, as we had planned, I turned and started to engage Mary, his wife. Yes. In almost in a, a separate conversation. And there Cab was, Cabot was, trying to listen to both sides, listen, listen to you and listen to me, as well as the responses of Mary. And all at once, he pushed himself ahead from the, the, the sofa, and he said, I can't listen to both of you talk at the same time. Well, why are you trying? Why are you <laughs> making such an effort? Why are you so concerned as and to what your wife might volunteer? And that was the whole point, <laughs> trying to involve them both in conversation so that we could we could kind of uh, learn a little bit more. But Cabot was always very, very, um, he was Boy. always very cordial. Yes. He was always very cordial, but but he was always very, very careful in what he said to us about the events. And uh, and in fact, he, I, I know that he lied to us a couple of times because you remember when we visited him in Squim, Washington, it was after Weaver had been out there to talk to him and he denied right. any knowledge of that. Well, the way Mary, all of a sudden, we were just getting ready to leave. We were standing by the car, and all at once, Mary blurts out, tell the boys about the colonel from the Pentagon who just visited you. Yeah, yeah. And, and his look of daggers, you know, towards her, and, and, he, did, and he just shot. Yeah, and I told him exactly as I told you. I don't know nothing. I don't, I, you know, I, I wasn't involved, that type of thing. It, and of course, that was a blatant lie because when you read the read the report that came out from the uh, Air Force, he was he was directly involved. He's the star and, witness. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, he was directly, he went out there. Well, remember, he told us, and I remember this, he told us that he had, they were too busy, being he and Rickett and the people in counterintelligence, he was too busy to, uh, with what he had to do to be involved in any balloon recoveries. Right, right. And then and then he tells, then he tells Weaver, yeah, I recognize it as a balloon the minute I saw it. And I'm thinking, did you bother to communicate this rather important piece of intelligence to Marcel, who's standing with you, you know, Jess, it's a balloon, for God's sake. Don't get all bent out of shape. Or Colonel Blanchard. <laughs> yes. But I, I remember saying to him, well, well uh, uh, Marcel talks about the guy, you know, uh, Brazel saddling two horses, and uh, Marcel drives out there, and he and, he and Brazel get, uh, get up on the horses, you know, he was a good old West Texas boy, could ride horses and that sort of thing. He says, well, it sounds like me, but I wasn't there. Well, yes, yes. maybe you were oh. there uh, from what you told Colonel Weaver. I wasn't involved. I wasn't even at Roswell. I mean, we went through that whole chain of events where leading right up to his interview with uh, Weaver. And uh, as you said, I mean, we both caught him more than a half a dozen times, you know, clearly, you know, falsifying information with well, us. We're coming up close to another break here. So I thought I'd interrupt you and, and get that process started. But you notice how the conversation devolved again into Roswell. We're, I'm trying to talk about MUFON and what's going on today. And suddenly we're talking about Roswell and witnesses that we had uh, interviewed uh, more years ago to, than I care to remember. I'm here with Don Schmidt. It's roswellinvestigator.com. His books include Witness to Roswell and Children of Roswell. And um, I forget the name of the book from... Uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Inside the real Area 51. The secret there you go. Wright Patterson. Right. And if you are interested in what we were talking about with um, General Exxon, who was the base commander in the 1960s at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, you can take a look at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And if you want to initiate an argument with Don, take a look at Roswell in the 21st century um, because it suggests some things here that uh, Don may not be complete agreement with, but I think is pretty accurate information. Um, and if you get a chance, take a look at some of the other fine programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. Uh, we will be back right after a few missions, but once again, take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com for more information. So when we get back, uh, we'll talk about MUFON maybe. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. 
No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. I promised just a few minutes ago that we would be back, and here we are already. I'm joined by Don Schmidt. We were talking about Roswell again. I don't know how we keep getting on that topic. But no matter what question I pose, we end up in Roswell. I, I don't get it myself. Anyway, we were kind of talking about uh, MUFON, and I wanted to bring it into the 21st century and some of the activities that have taken place over the last few months at MUFON uh, with the uh, Pennsylvania State Director, I think it was also the Delaware State Director making a, a, a posting a very racist rant on his um, Facebook page, and then the reaction of the MUFON staff and some of the things going on. How cognizant are you of what's going on in, in MUFON in today's environment? You keep up with a lot of people in MUFON. Do you know a lot of the people in MUFON? Well, I've had, and as I know you have, wonderful support on the state level. There are some uh, truly amazing state chapters that are you know, still conducting actual field investigation. They're, they're, uh, they have a, a, a great solid core of volunteers, of participants. And unfortunately, they're being washed all with the same brush at the moment. And you and I both observed over the last number of years that for the, the quick transition of one director after another is though nobody wanted to, uh, you know, man the ship, so to speak that they realized maybe there was a slow leak and they needed the bail before something more you know, serious took place. And then this slow evolution into, well, we need to, you know, almost like increase the umbrella, increase the size of the tent. We, we start, we need to invite, um, as far as Stephen Greer to our symposiums, we need to start looking back at uh, Billy Meyer once again, and maybe we missed something. And I look back, and that's how we keep coming back to Roswell, because I keep thinking, but look at how shabbily they treated us when we were actually, you know, trying to solve this once and for all, and we couldn't get, you know, the time of day from UFON at one point. Well, to be, to be fair, Dennis Stacy offered us uh, multiple opportunities to respond in the MUFON journal. Key point, key word, respond. But, but, it was well, but, but he, I mean, he would he would get he would get an article. I mean, as as an editor of a magazine, you get an article and it's an interesting article and it deals with a topic that, you know, your readers are interested in um, and you want to publish that article. But before he would publish it, he would send he would send um, a copy to me and say, uh, you know, what would you like to say in response to this? How would you like to t- talk about this? So, I mean, Stacy and MUFON at that time. I, as encapsulated in in Stacy was was very fair with some of that stuff that was going on. Um, it was at the higher echelons that we were getting into, well, we were getting into trouble, but getting a lack of respect because. Um, and, and, and and Dennis, he was the editor of the Mufon Journal, and you are correct that we would submit articles or we would uh, agree to respond to. Uh, at times, a, a bit of a hatchet piece, so to speak. But as you also allude to the fact, we were being then sh- it was being shot down from the higher ups. 
that it was Walt Andrews specifically was saying they're not getting, you know, an opportunity to respond. And Dennis would have to bow to such wishes. But uh, I don't deny yet, Dennis, uh, he was uh, more than, you know, neutral and fair um, minded as far as uh, all aspects of, of the case. And um, I only you look back and uh, those were, you know, the prime days of MUFON in retrospect. And they've, they've now moved into, I would say, more a new agey approach of a latest symposium had a couple of guys who claimed to be time travelers. But that's, One, that's kind of the irony, not to interrupt you, but the irony, even with Walt Andrus, that if one were to really, you know, talk to people who knew Walt, he believed UFOs were angels. In fact, his wife was into channeling. So Walt himself, in fact, I'll, I'll never forget, and you and I were at the symposium at the Benton Center in Albuquerque. And I'll never forget because we knew the, the, the young lady at that time who was the state director of New Mexico, and she complained to us um, quite um, seriously that she had instructions for Walt that she was to create more of a new age theme, that they needed to expand, attract a much larger audience. So it was even happening 25 years ago. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> and I, I, looking at the paranormal, you've got a, a much broader base to draw in than if you just narrow it to UFOs. Even when we expand it into all the ancillary areas that really have very little to do with UFOs, and I, I think of crop circles and cattle mutilations as two areas that really do not belong in the UFO Parthenon, if you want. If you want. Agreed. Agreed. <clears throat> in but fact, I, you remember yeah. my theory about uh, cattle mutilations. It was done by McDonald's for hamburgers? <laughs> well, if you recall, and you do, certainly, the uh, investigation by Senator Harrison Schmidt of New Mexico. When they last, had to, man, last man to walk on the moon. Precisely. But as a state senator at that time, they conducted an actual investigation into the... State, a, state, a state senator or a United States senator? Uh, United States senator. Okay. As I recall. Yes. Um, and well, well, nonetheless, um, the fact that it was that the, most of the catamulations were predominantly in New Mexico and Colorado. And I would always ask, now, what is the one constant theme between those two states? And then if you were to check the jet stream for June of 1945 and then the fallout. From Trinity, so it's all—it's long been my supposition that what we're dealing with are just unmarked helicopters that are constantly testing cattle, taking soft tissue samples, and uh, discarding the carcass, dropping it back down to the ground. No tracks, no footprints, and um, just like Area 51, creating this false premise that uh, it's a smokescreen for something else. Well, I would disagree that the cattle mutilations were limited or mainly in New Mexico and Colorado. Uh, having looked into this many times, and one time Jim Lorenzen actually called me and says, there's cattle mutilations in Minnesota. Can you go take a look at it? Which I, I did. Um, so you can take a look at you know, the cattle mutilations. There are an awful lot of them around the country. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I think a lot of it dealt not with 
any kind of government um, project, but was because people were talking about mutilation of cow that had died and been attacked by scavengers, and it was suddenly a mutilated cow as yes. opposed to something yeah. that would have been. And and I do know of one one. I investigated one in Wisconsin, actually, Grand County, Wisconsin, and the je the the vet there was uh, Dr. Jefferson Davis. It always cracked me up, Jefferson Davis in Wisconsin. <laughs> yes, and he, right. And and he told me about a farmer. Does he have a statue a, anywhere? No kidding. No, it's in it's in uh, Richmond, Virginia. If it hasn't been pulled down yet. If it has been pulled. <laughs> but but he told me about a farmer who had a cow that had been sickly, and if it died of its disease, he got no insurance money. But if it was killed and mutilated, then he got the insurance money. He had done the mutilations himself for the insurance money. I mean, he was engaging in insurance mm -hmm. fraud, but it wasn't standard mutilations either. It was just they cut off a couple of lips and an ear or something. It's, it's, no, right, right, right. And, and but, we, but the point okay. simply is they were talking about a mutilation and they had some investigator that showed up, he had a big UFO investigator on the side of his van. That's what it said, UFO investigator. And he came into town and says, every time we get a UFO sighting, now we get a cattle mutilation. Um, so, I mean, it, it, I think it was more hysteria than anything that was uh, actually going on. It's kind oh, of it, it was. And, and I think, that, again, getting back to the fact that New Mexico actually conducted a study suggesting that a, a, a large majority of the cases were through New Mexico and Colorado. And, and certainly there have been cases uh, throughout the country and, and could very well be around the world. But, and, and most could be attributed to predators and religious cults and the fact that they were relying on veterinarians to examine a, a, a carcass when they should have been bringing in animal pathologists who actually knew what to look for in such cases. Well, Don, I have to tell you, it's been fun. <laughs> we covered. <laughs> well, Somehow in that segment, we did not get back to Roswell, which is a good thing, uh, uh, or in this segment. And we didn't uh, Crop circles, my God. No, and, and I didn't get to ask you about the children of Roswell either because I had some questions about that book, but we'll have to leave that for another time. Or another time. Uh, the uh, website is roswellinvestigators.com. Your latest book is Children Actually, of Roswell? No, the, the new book is Cover Up at Roswell. Okay. This came out in uh, in uh, last month, yes. So you're milk, milking the Roswell cow once again. Well, uh, I, I wouldn't say milking it as much as taking a whole different approach and, and focusing strictly on the activity of uh, suppression, what they did to the press, what they did to the civilians, as, as well as the military in uh, essentially shutting this all down. And what they've even done to the present, the contemporary, with the late Congressman Stephen Schiff, and even throwing in Senator Goldwater, and even former presidents like Carter and, and, and Clinton. Um, well, but, but we are out of time. I can't help it. We're out of time. Uh, you got to plug in for your new book. I got to get a plug in for mine here in a moment here. Um, but if you want to know more about what Don and I were talking about, uh, General Laxon, for example, and some of the things about going on in MUFON, take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. My book was Roswell in the 21st Century. And the next one is Contact in the Desert, which deals with the Socorro. UFO case um, with, I think, some additional and more interesting information there. I will return in 167 hours with another uh, episode here. I think next week, because we've hit the year anniversary, the year mark, uh, I'm going to do the retrospective, which I promise, I, I prom 
promised to do periodically on the program, give you an idea of what we've talked about and things that we have done. So you'll have an opportunity to, to listen to that. Let's listen to me ramble on for a little bit about what's going on. But as I say, take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And if you have a chance, take a look at XZone, uh, BN, xzbn.net for some of the other fine programs on the XZone Broadcast Network. We will be here next week.